Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body inclusive non diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today as we dive down into lots of interesting topics. Well, the main thing is boundaries, boundaries and boundaries in this particular episode where I speak with Meg McClintock. So I'll introduce you to Meg in just a moment, along with uh, what Meg does in her life, the many, many talents and skills that Meg has and what she brings to the world. But first of all, just a bit of an update from the Mindful Dietitian. So recently I've just released lots of uh, workshops that that, um, that I'll be presenting for the rest of the year. Uh, this is 2019. <laughs> You're not back in 2018, don't worry. This is the latest podcast being uh, released in Uh, May 2019. So uh, Fiona Willer and I, Fiona from Health Not Diets and also host of the Unpacking Weight Science podcast, you must, if you have not registered or or, um, you're not a subscriber to Fiona Willer's Unpacking Weight Science podcast, it is arguably the best resource you will get where Fee is just a straight talking, no bullshit uh, dietetic researcher and she, she also knows clinical practice really well as well. Um, She brings the best of her brain and she downloads it into episodes, this podcast episodes, snippets that even people probably like, well, I was going to say you and I, but let's not make assumptions. I'm just going to talk for myself and say that even I can understand. You know, there's, um, she does, you know, there are some big words there, big words all in the same sentence, which are very impressive. But not only is Fee just a mega brain, she's also very funny and very kind and is one of my very, very close friends. So really recommend the Unpacking Weight Science podcast. So the reason I mentioned Fiona Willer is because she and I are doing our around Australia and New Zealand kind of non-diet approach workshop tour, I guess you would say, our annual around Australia and New Zealand um, uh, tour. And this year we've chosen um, a couple of new cities to visit um, just to change things up a little bit. And so we're going to be in Perth in June and then we're going to be in Auckland in New Zealand in uh, October and in Melbourne in October. And then we're going to go to Newcastle, which is actually really near Meg's hometown of Maitland. And we're going to be in Newcastle in November. So if you're looking for a little bit of maybe a few days away or, uh, you know, uh, wanting to visit some wineries, then, you know, going to the Hunter Valley um, in Newcastle is maybe a good good way that you can extend the two-day non-diet approach workshop trip away. And need I say tax deduction? 
don't mention that to your accountant. Um, you know, just keep that to yourself, maybe. Uh, so the other exciting news is that I'll be visiting the US this year, doing also doing some non-diet approach workshops. And the title for this one is Principles, Practice and Purpose. And um, I'll be co-hosting this with Hayley Goodrich from Inspired Nutrition, um, which I'm really, really excited about. Um, Hayley's talents and skills are no, no bounds, but specifically she is amazing at uh, the intersection of non-diet approach and entrepreneurship. So how we can bring our skills into building a thriving and sustainable practice whilst also aligning with the ethics associated with um, health at every size practice. So um, I'm really excited to be doing collaborating with such strong, incredible, very smart, clever women during 2019. Um, on my own, I'm going to be doing a couple of workshops here in Melbourne. Uh, why not? My home city. One is going to be the um, Bringing Presence to Tough Conversations. This is the same workshop that I did in New York City and then in San Diego earlier on this year in 2019. And I just really love that work workshop so much that I figured I may as well uh, run it again here in Melbourne. And then the second one, which I'll be running for the first time, is going to be Introduction to ACT or Acceptance and Commitment Therapy for dietitians. Um, those of you who know my practice will know that it's very, very underpinned by, by ACT, um, closely followed by motivational interviewing, of which I am by no means an expert. I would suggest you really look to um, Dawn Clifford's work, um, Tara McGregor's workshops are absolutely incredible if you're wanting to dig down more into motivational interviewing specifically for dietitians. I also really like the book by Ellen Golovsky and all her training, and of course, Molly Kellogg. So motivational interviewing, not necessarily my wheelhouse, but I do love it. And I really recommend that you, um, you know, seek out other colleagues, specifically dietitians, who have done such formative, incredible work at being able to bring these particular therapeutic models into dietetic care and, and uh, you know, they're so smart and clever. It's just such a treat to be in, in their company. Uh, apart from that, um, there's lots of online learning at The Mindful Dietitian. You can learn more about this uh, via the website, which is www.themindfuldietitian.com.au. In fact, in the next couple of days, I'm going to be releasing the Exploring Appet Appetite short course, which will partner with the uh, Mindful Eating Essentials. And soon it will have a trio associated with it, which is called Food Cues. And that will become the Food Body Mind series. I know, all very fancy, maybe a little confusing but there's lots more information on the website and um, um, I do regular kind of um, deals and all kinds of things on resources and courses if you um, sign up for the newsletter um, which has lots of practice tips alternating that with um, events and all kinds of things that hopefully will keep you involved in our wonderful mindful dietitian community so I wanted to move along and introduce you to Meg McClintock so my friend and colleague Meg is an APD or accredited practicing dietitian and she's got over 16 years experience being a dietitian and she spent the first part of her career in hospital-based clinical dietetics. Not That wasn't my cup of tea my first two years in clinical dietetics but Meg is just so um, she's got this amazing way of looking at evidence-based practice and clinical reasoning and multidisciplinary care, which I think makes her perfect, you know, in that intersection of a clinical practice and now in private practice, uh, which is called Choose Nutrition. So she founded Choose Nutrition in 2011 as she was searching for the latest evidence in the area of, well, what we used to call 
quote unquote weight management and now we would call it weight concern really people who are who present with with weight concern um, and so this is obviously an area that Meg hasn't hadn't needed to focus on within the hospital context and um, and this was the time that she came across non-diet approach intuitive eating and health at every size so Meg um, Mel, Meg tells a story that uh, you know this this paradigm really made sense to her and really raised some discomfort around weight-centric dietetics and not only provided an alternative framework but also she speaks about it as being a missing piece of the puzzle and and developing an understanding of weight stigma and its harmful influence on on research and dietetic practice and the lives of individuals has really kind of closed this circle off and really brought Meg um, firmly into uh, being a non-diet dietitian. So Meg has uh, so many skills and talents, but she especially loves working with school students and teachers to support the provision of safe eating disorder-informed nutrition education. Meg is also a Health at Every Size Australia, or Hayes Australia, advisory group member and has delivered guest lectures on Health at Every Size and the non-diet approach for dietetic students in New South Wales, which we are all so grateful for. So let's just move right along. And here is my conversation with Meg McClintock. Hey Meg, thank you so much for joining me here at the Mindful Dietitian podcast. It's awesome to connect. Oh, it's so good to be here, Fee. It's been too long since we've caught up. I know. I know. You and I um, have um, crossed paths a lot over the years. We've kind of come through the health at every size kind of crew you know, together in lots of ways. Mm. And um, and you have taken more of a, of a regional position um, in terms of dietetic practice over the past couple of years. So so tell us a little bit about what what took you to beautiful Maitland. Yeah, so um, not work. I actually came up here for, um, for my husband's work. So he got the, had the opportunity to take up a position as head of junior school um, at one of the local private schools up here. Um, and we sort of had a think about the lifestyle up here, um, the opportunities that would give our kids to attend that school and, um, yeah, decided to make the move oh, it was about two and a half years ago um, that we moved up here. So um, it was hard. Like I had to, you know, close my practice, which I spent quite a few years building and um, start again. Um, I held on to a, a number of my clients um, and see them online, like through Zoom or Skype. Um, but basically it was starting from scratch um, in a in a area that sometimes feels really the same and really similar to where I was in Sydney, and then sometimes feels very different. Yeah, that's actually it's really interesting. So, uh, both you and I uh, did a really amazing course with Tara McGregor, who is from yes. Practice Pavestones, and she uh, in in the course which was entitled um, what was it entitled? Was it something about boundaries? Uh, yeah, and preventing burnout. Oh yeah. Professional boundary, maintaining professional boundaries and preventing burnout or something. Oh, whatever it was called, it was amazing and everyone should do it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I'm 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 curious to understand a little bit more about how moving from you know a major metro area of Sydney where there's a lot of people and a lot of people who we don't know to then a, re- a regional area where actually you're quite involved in the community, particularly when your kids are very active um, and in sports clubs and, uh, you know, your whole family is probably fairly well known. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious to understand a little bit more about how that transition went for you and what you've learned along the way. Yeah, so it's totally, um 
was really interesting. So, um, yeah, as I mentioned, in some ways it feels really similar to Sydney, um, but what I've noticed in my practice is how often there's a dual relationship. So how often there's someone who books in to see me um, and I don't recognise the name, I don't think anything of it, um, and then we realise very quickly either from the uniform that they're wearing when they're sitting in the waiting room or through something get, that gets said really early on um, in the session that actually we know a lot of the same people um, or our paths are going to cross or have, you know, cross in something um, unrelated to the reason that they're coming to see me. So that's probably been the um, the biggest change. And it's been a, on one hand, it's a strength. So being a small, smaller town, there aren't as many dietitians. There certainly aren't, um, there weren't any eating disorder dietitians um, before I started. So there's some great opportunities in that. Um, and also it's easier to get to know, you know, often it's hard to get to know GPs and psychologists if you're just sharing clients, whereas if you also see them um, out socially because their kids go to the same school or they're running in your running club or whatever, um, you can actually get to know them on that personal level, um, which can, I think that's going to be really beneficial for your clients if you then share clients because you do have that understanding, but you've got to be really clear on your boundaries. Um, and so that's been something which was really new for me. So there's the opportunities that you get known quite quickly um, and get recommended quite quickly. Um, but on the other hand, there's the challenges of how do we keep everyone safe um, and secure in this situation? Mm. So what are some of the tips that you've, or learning points, I guess, that you have developed along the way, which might be helpful to share? Yeah. Um, so I think one of the, the biggest one is, to be open in your communication about it. Um, so I have i didn't ever have a good confidentiality agreement, um, but through Tara's course um, and some other reading and stuff, I've developed one. So before I just had like a confidentiality, confidentiality statement on my client information form that said, you know, information's confidential, I'll send reports to involved health professionals. If you don't want to report or if you've got any concerns, let me know. Um, whereas now the first thing that I do with someone is actually go through quite a detailed confidentiality agreement that has a place for um, dual relationships, other, you know, other particular specific areas of confidentiality that we need to address. And so if, that, if I find, if I discover that they're connected to the school where my husband works and my kids go in any way at all, um, then we'll have a specific chat about how do you want me to, if I see you in the playground, if I see you while I'm dropping off my kids or <laughs> when I'm coming in, because I've done a little bit of work with stuff, if I see you how, do you, how do you want me to play that? Like, do you want me to just ignore you, pretend I don't know you? Do you want to say hi? What do you want to do? Um, we can't have we can't have a clinical discussion. Like, that's not going to, that's not on the table as an option. Um, but how do you want to do that? Because as much as, I don't think there should be any shame or secrecy needed about seeing a dietitian or having an eating disorder. Um, it's not my call to out someone, <laughs> for want of a better term, um, that they're seeing a dietitian. So just being sensitive to that. And I think the, the only way forward actually is to just call it out, say, hey, this is, this is a risk. Um, this is a challenging situation. How are we going to, how are we going to work? How, what, what solution are we going to come up with? Um, so everyone feels safe and everyone knows what's happening. 
Yeah, I think that conversation is just so worthwhile having for a number of reasons. So actually, it's a really helpful therapeutic conversation, you know, and it just so happens that it is about boundaries and confidentiality. Mm. But for so many reasons, you know, having um, clear um, having clear boundaries and um, developing a shared understanding about what do we mean when we're when we're addressing ABC or what are your expectations or how yes. would you like me to address you or yeah. um, yep. you know uh, what, think- what are your pronouns or you know all these kind of things are actually therapeutic conversations because you're um, you're you're kind you're of establishing how it's going to go really you're establishing yeah. that trust and you're establishing that hey I don't have all the answers and I need to hear from you about how this is going to go and I think from the outset you're showing that this is an active partnership it's not a you come in and I tell you how things are going to go um it's so this is uh, an active partnership and so we're going to work together to come up with a solution that works for both of us um and I think also it's what can happen um is that you don't know how close to their chest someone wants to play something so you know, I've had a situation where um, I haven't said anything to my husband about seeing someone, um, but then the person has come and talked to him as if he knew, um, and he's had to go, "Oh no, I don't, I don't know." Oh, obviously, you think I know something that I don't know, and so that can be quite tricky. Um, I was talking to a speech pathologist. It's really funny who does some early childhood stuff, and she said her five-year-old came home and told her who her clients were, because she doesn't talk about with her five-year-old, especially not any names but someone in her five-year-old's class has said, oh, I saw your mum for communication or for swallowing or whatever it was. <laughs> and oh, she was like, oh, what do I do with this? Like, I don't want to confirm it, but he's five and he knows. <laughs> right. So that stuff which it's, it, it can happen. It absolutely can happen. And if you haven't had any conversation about it, um, people can feel icky and feel uncomfortable and um, that's going to be a detriment to working together. Yes, absolutely. So in kind of as starting your private practice again, what are the kind of skills that you took from your Sydney practice in terms of um, building your clientele, in terms of building your practice? What did you take with you into essentially starting again in Maitland? Yeah, um, I think one of the absolute... um, things you need to do is to be quite clear about um, who you are and what you do with people. And I think the only way to do that, um, well, so not the only way, one of the ways that I found most effective to do that is actually through my communication, written communication, doctor's letters, um, back to the GPs um, because they do read them and um, that's, I found that's one of my best marketing um, strategy is to be is to do a really good job. Um, one of the practices that refers to us quite regularly now, I actually had a patient, a client come. It was just a mum who was worried about her um, teenage son who was in a bigger body, um, and she was really struggling with that. She couldn't understand it because he had a very lean brother, and she basically wanted weight loss advice for him. And we talked, you know, whole session about why I don't do that and what the risks are and what I do instead and um, talked all sort of through that. And then, of course, the doctor's expecting a letter back about, you know, the diet that I've put this person on to help them lose weight, which I don't do. Um, and so rather than just saying, hey, this is here's my letter, here's what I've done, doing a cover letter saying, hey, here's my letter, it might be different to what you're, what you're expecting, this is why, 
I've done it this way. Um, you know, feel free to call me if you want to just talk about it further. And I think in this particular one I'm thinking of, I included the um, American Academy of Pediatrics position statement mm. on the um, quotes management of obesity and eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, within a week, had a phone call from the practice saying, can you come in and talk to us? Um, and they've referred to us ever since. So that's been the best way to do it is to do a really good job with my clients um, and do a good job in my communication back to um, back to the referring doctor or to the doctor, even if the doctor didn't refer them in the first place. Yes, yes. So kind of using some initiative to um, improve communication channels between uh, yourself and any referring providers. Yeah, and I'll absolutely copy a copy of my letter to any specialist who's involved. Um, and again, I get permission for that on my confidentiality agreement. Um, and that grows and the word of mouth grows. It's like, oh, that's right, that dietitian, that, that report was interesting. Um, um, I might send other people to her. Yeah, that's actually really wonderful advice, really. And what an amazing way that we can also elevate the non-diet approach message as well. So we we may or may not feel like it's appropriate or comfortable or like a good match for us to be able to use explicitly the words health at every size or non-diet approach, mm. um, just depending on the, the situation or the recipient or the or the client or you know yeah. all, all kinds of different absolutely there are so many ways that we can integrate what we actually do and say um mm. in ways that and can, why and why <laughs> i think it's the right. why i think that was drilled into me from my um because i started when i was first a dietitian i spent my first 11 years in the public hospital system and that was drilled into us then that you know if you are going to make a recommendation you have to be ready for the admitting doctor the specialist um, the consultant to ask you why, and you can absolutely disagree with them. You can have a different recommendation to what they expected, but if you've got good clinical reasoning, if you can explain why, um, and you can you've got the evidence to back it up, then you will be able to make your point, and you might be able to change their practice and to change their mind on something. Um, but if you don't have that, if it's just that this is what we do, um, I felt like it, <laughs> yeah. then you're not actually going to really get anywhere um, with doctors who, um, you know, have an evidence base, a lot of evidence-based practice. Mm. Yeah, and, and the good thing for us is that there is um, not only emerging evidence but really well-established evidence in terms of weight-inclusive care. So being able to include those um, words very um, considerately and deliberately in our letters can really uh, help to lay that groundwork of um you know, um, it, it's not even subtle education. It is. It's overt no. education. This is, and this is a way it that, really we, is. yeah, this is a way that we can um, bring more health professionals. Well, maybe not bring them on board, but really entice their curiosity to find out more about it. Particularly if then, and you actually get a good outcome. Um, so I will be very explicit in my letters saying, you know, I did not weigh X or set a weight loss goal because to do that would risk this, this, and this. Instead we're doing this. Um, and particularly if it's a, you know, I've had that with sort of a nine or 10 year old girls. I think doctors are kind of, oh, has on their radar, but they don't know there's an alternative. So I go, instead we're doing this. And then they go off and do some Ellen status stuff and they increase their acceptance and they're feeling good and they are, you know, not being restricted in the day. So they're not overdoing it in the evenings and, you know, LFTs improve or whatever. Um, then the doctors go, oh, it's not that you're doing nothing. And I think if we just go, it's not an approach or it's health at every size and leave it at that, 
then people just make up their own answer to what that actually so means. Yep. Whereas if you can be really explicit, saying, I'm not doing this because of this. Instead, we're doing this. Here are our goals. Here's what we're doing. And then when they come back and it's gone well and we've improved, we've improved dietary quality um, and we've potentially reduced um, discretionary binging like at parties and stuff because we've got that permission, then the doctors see that and they see that, hang on, this is the outcome we were hoping for um, by focusing on where we want to go. It's that classic um, when you learn to ride a bike, you know, you're told, you know, look where you want to go. Don't look at the obstacle that you're trying to avoid. Because if you like, don't hit the tree, don't hit the tree, don't hit the tree, and all your attention is focused on the tree, well, you hit it every time. And I've learned to ride a bike in the last year, and I'm like, don't hit the pothole. If I look at the pothole, I'm going in the pothole. If I look around the pothole where I want to go, I'm going there. And so it's shifting that focus from weight to, oh, panic about incomers childhood obesity to well, what do we want? We want to foster healthy relationships with food. We want dietary quality. We want people in tune with their bodies. We want them um, to have good mental health. We want them being active because these things are good for their bodies. So let's look at, let's foster that um, full stop and just look at that and then follow that path and just, just forget about the tree. Mm. Yeah. It's really interesting you say that Meg, because um you know, how we frame our own experiences or our, the behaviours that we engage in, when we frame them as quote-unquote problems, then we kind of get drawn into either either as just as human beings or then in a professional setting as well, we kind of get drawn into this idea of then fixing so yes. when we kind of pathologize or problematize, which is my favorite new word, by the way. Problematize. Um, problematize. <laughs> so we're talking about, I mean, you gave the great example of a tree and um, some people might, uh, for example, pathologize emotional eating or um, mm. eating past the point of comfortable fullness or something like this. They might, um, or, or maybe the weight, you know, maybe weight is quote unquote. Yes, weight seems to be the the one that most often seen as the problem. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's interesting that, you know, when we centralise our experience or our body or our behaviour as the problem, it immediately kind of draws us into and there's something wrong I'm that needs to be fixed. So to kind of build upon your, you know, what you focus on, that's where your energy is kind of going to go. Um, mm. It's also how we frame that as well. It's like when we frame that as some, something wrong, then it then it definitely makes us feel like, okay, well, either something wrong with me and or it something needs to be done to me in order to overcome X, Y, Z. So, yeah, mm. I, I just think that the, the kind of the language and the communication strategies that we're kind of talking about right now, it really matters. Um, and it matters in our, in our um, like, for example, in our pest statements and, um, uh, you know, our letters and the way we, we speak with our, our clients and our, our referring providers um, so that we kind of, I'm going to call it de-problematizing. How's that? Yeah, I like it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. And I think it's, um, it's so if you've made that the problem, um, then the solution is for that thing to change. And as we know, that's 
certainly not a given. Um, in fact, it's quite likely not mm-hmm. going to change if we're talking about weight. But that's if that's the goal, um, then any other changes that we make that might actually be good for somebody, any other change that they make, they're never seen as good enough mm-hmm. because they haven't led to the change, the weight change. Um, and the, so the same behaviours can have come from this great place of self-care and that, you know, of how I'm going to look at my sleep and I'm going to and look at variety and I'm going to be relaxed. I'm going to see how it's affecting my relationships and all this great stuff. Um, someone can feel great about what they're doing, but if they're doing it with the expectation of weight loss and then they hop on the scales, they go, oh, what was the point of any of that? Yes. Um, and it can just absolutely cut them off at the knees and make them feel like none of it was worth it. When if you can have the focus on, on process and on how do they think about you feel in your body like right now, that sort of mindfulness, that non-judgmental awareness of what's happening right now and how is this serving me or not, um, it's just such a different experience for people. Um, even if from the outside it looks quite similar. Yes. Yes, that's, yeah, that's really true. And in our current kind of the way, the way that our health system is set up, um, you know, even, even outcome, you know, outcome-based pro- kind of protocols and so forth. It's, mm, yes. It's, it's not that, it's, it's difficult for um, our, our clients and patients and also for us too when there are certain expectations put, on, put upon outcomes. And yet, you know, the process of, you know, uh, a health at every size dietitian and using non-diet approach principles would be that we're focusing so much more on the process and on mm. so, so much more on um, being an active participant in, um, in observing my own life, really, in so many ways. Oh, absolutely, because that's, I mean, so many people who have had a weight focus for themselves, they've put so much of their life sort of on hold until... I'm a certain weight. Um, and so by freeing that from that, life doesn't happen until I'm X kilos to, hey, life's happening, like right now. Um, how, what do we want to do with that information? You know, not judging it, not, not trying to make people feel like they're not doing it right. I think that's also the risk. Um, but just creating that little bit of a breath, that little bit of a space to go, where's my energy in this moment? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have finite energy, we have finite capacity um, and to not do things because we don't think um, we deserve them yet or to do things because we feel like we have to, if we can just pause on all that busyness and all that sort of messy head syndrome of shoulds and shoulds and shoulds and just go, okay, <laughs> what, 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 what about this moment right now? Like what about... Um, yeah, what decision do I want to make and what I want to learn from what, you know, from what decision I've made in the past or that I've, um, in the process of making right now. So it's allowing that messiness, but also just trying to calm it all down a bit. Yeah, that's so true. And often we don't give ourselves the space really just to pause and, and consider, not only consider options and choices, but then also just consider um, the context and also capacity as well. What's my capacity mm-hmm. in this moment to be able to engage in X, Y, Z and to honour that? Because as as you and I know, I mean, you and I are both multi-privileged people um, and that, that capacity is at a real premium for a lot of us a lot of the time. Oh, absolutely. Like it's not, life's not easy. Um, and so 
we've got to have give ourselves permission to think about um, where we want to spend that energy and give our clients permission. And I've had clients who, you know, after the sort of initial conversation about what we do, and I love um, Fiona Wheeler's consent form, non-diet approach, um, or weight management consent form, I think it's called, where it looks at, you know, this is the non-diet, this is the traditional approach, this is the non-diet approach, and actually right now might not be a time where you actually have capacity to do anything about this right now, and you're allowed to do that. Um, that's often a revelation for people that they get to decide. Um, and I've had people have gone, oh, actually, well, the next three months looks like this for me and I don't actually want to do anything different. Like this is working for me at the moment. It was really my doctor who forced me here. Um, can, I, can I come back in, in three months' time when this event's happened or when my retirement starts or whatever it might be? Um, so many people are doing things because they think they should and if they stop to actually consider why they're not doing those things, there's often really good reasons. Um, and so I think a big important part of our job is actually helping people work through that um, sort of that decisional balance for, you know, in motivation interviewing that sort of tool of what are the reasons why you're doing what you're doing now? Um, what's good about that? What's not good about that? Um, what's going to be the barriers to change and what are going to be the challenges if you decide to, to change this? Um, and what will be the benefits? Of that and you kind of look at it all on paper and go you know what what I'm getting from this actually outweighs what I might get from changing so I'm not going to do that right now I remember doing um, a, that sort of activity with a lady who was really beating herself up about not getting to bed early I think mums are you know we often start really late and then really tired and cranky the next morning and she was really beating herself up about um, not going to bed by whatever time it was and we just sort of sat down and said, so okay, let's actually have, a, have an impact. There are no sleep police, just like there are no actual food police, as, many, as much as many people might want to be the food police. They don't actually exist. Um, so let's have a little think about what you're getting from this current behaviour. And so she, where we went through this sort of process of um, what's going to be negatives. If you start going to bed early, what are the, what are the negatives? Um, okay, um, what are going to be the Also, what are the positives? Um, and once she looked on the page, she goes, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to change that right now because what I'm getting from staying up a bit later is actually really important to me. It's time when I do my craft or it's time when I have a little bit of quietness, I get ready for the next day. All that stuff is actually more valuable than the extra hour sleep. And so instead of beating herself up about it, she just owned her decision. So I think an important part of our job is to actually help people, A, make a decision rather than just do the default and then own it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, and develop some understanding and, and compassion around. Yeah, compassion, very important. Yeah. And, and that it doesn't have to be forever. I think that's the other thing. People often feel like they've made a decision that they're locked in. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's that's really true. And that, you know, we as humans, we are most often are acting in our best interests, even, even when the behaviours don't seem that way perhaps. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's a, a classic one you mentioned sort of um, people that beat up on themselves about emotional eating, um, helping people to see that actually at its heart, it's self-care. Absolutely. Um, it might not be working very well, <laughs> but give yourself some credit for in a time perhaps from even developed in childhood when there wasn't other options. You know what? Good on you for actually reaching to something that helped you feel safe. Yes. Um, in a situation when you 
weren't safe. Um, so have some compassion for yourself in that. And now that you've got that awareness and the compassion, uh, do you is this what you want to be doing um, without the without the judgment? And I think it's just the judgment in food in particular is just a fever pitch in our society that people feel so stuck no matter which way they turn they're not doing something right oh definitely and to go back to my favorite word problematizing um <laughs> you know our whole wider health system whether it's health professionals or whether it's journos or whoever you know public health uh folks uh you know the the seeing food foods eating behavior etc cetera, etc cetera, as problems um, mm. it, it sets us up to not only feel guilt and shame but then also for folks that have been using um, food and eating behaviors as very valid uh, coping strategies especially in the face of trauma uh, yep. that it, it it deepens the shame and blame that that people are, are experiencing so when we are able to reframe and reposition ourselves in within our experiences and to uh, find some compassion if that is available to us knowing that you know or, or our understanding that compassionate practice is actually um, it can be really difficult for people to access particularly if you know shame and blame have been the go-to places um, so just understanding that you know meeting and, and greeting our experiences from a place of kindness, especially when we've been absolutely doing what we can um, yes. in the face of cultural messaging, which tells us that it is like the worst thing to do to eat chocolate in front of the television in the evening time. And I think to myself, <laughs> what comes after four? What are you doing? <laughs> I That's know. right. <laughs> and it's and food can be a beautiful way of looking after yourself and looking after other people um it's if it's i think the where we want to help people get to is is it working for you is it and by working i mean are you feeling better is it is it is it soothing um because if it's one of a range of things then it's probably great um but if it's actually you don't not giving yourself permission to see it as a sort of a self-care thing or something you're allowed to do. Are you then whacking yourself, you know, and heaping on afterwards and actually feeling worse than you did before? Mm -hmm. um, and often people think the fix to feeling terrible like that is just to white knuckle it out of not doing the behaviour anymore. Um, whereas the fix, fix, not a great word, but you know what I mean, um, is often compassion and permission. Um, and and understanding where that's come from in the first place and so many people have got such a critical voice in their own head which has come from critical voices outside um, of them and so the idea of compassion can be really foreign to them as well so it's not it's not just a given that people are going to be able to find that that compassion quickly it's really interesting, Meg. I was at the um, International Eating Disorders Conference um, earlier this year in um, New York, and I went to a session with uh, jo uh, Josie Geller, who is a self-compassion expert from Canada. She was our keynote speaker at our ANZ conference last year, beg pardon, the year before last in Sydney. And the reason that I was really interested in Josie's workshop is because she built upon all the work that she has already done. And a lot of us have kind of been, um, you know, really jiving on for a number of years around self-compassion. But this was slightly different. 
the workshop was really based on barriers to self-compassion. And I'm really interested mm. because I've certainly over the years had a number of clients and also experienced this myself where um, it, where, where the, the concept of it sounds um, all kind of fine and good, but recognizing and acknowledging that when, when, uh, when barriers and, and these can, these can come up in terms of um, fears or thoughts or beliefs or, um, you know, trauma related experiences, it, there's lots of different reasons why self-compassion just feels really inaccessible to us. And mm. one thing that Josie really um, hammered home for us is that fear of emotional vulnerability is by far and away the number one barrier to self-compassion. And I found that really interesting. Oh, wow. like, like unsurprising, if I think about it, unsurprising. But the whole workshop was around this and you know how can we work with shame experiences of shame um, and experiencing um, positioning ourselves as uh, the locus of, of blame and cause um, and therefore you know spending inordinate amounts of time and energy trying to right ourselves or trying to fix ourselves um, because in positioning ourselves as as broken um, you know, in order to, to position ourselves differently requires some real, you know, um, some work and some emotional vulnerability around that. So I just thought it was really, really interesting. Yeah, and I think that definitely rings true as I sort of consider um, some of my clients who seem to struggle the most with um, possibly the concept but possibly actually the practices so I don't you know I'm not a psychologist but I'll often send people off to sort of Kristen Neff's website um, and say here are some practices that I think would be useful for you to, to be doing um, and often the people who say oh I started but I just couldn't or who seem to have other um, unsaid reasons for not for not doing it are those people who probably struggle the most with emotional vulnerability so the clients who say things like i never cry <laughs> um even though they're in some you know significantly um just mm -hmm. difficult and horrible circumstances um so that yeah that that certainly rings true um yeah i'd love to look into that more actually yeah, it is interesting. There's actually a scale um, that I think, I could be wrong, but I think it was a scale that was developed and validated by Paul Gilbert, um, and it is the Barriers to Self-Compassion scale. Uh, oh, wow. Mm, is it called the Barriers to Self-Compassion? Yes. I, I don't know. It might be. I'm going to look it up, and if I can look it up, if I find it, I'll, I'll attach it to here, and if it's available for free, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But actually, it's not new. Oh, wow. Yeah, That'd be really interesting. Yeah, not new and it's a way, it's, it's, it's maybe a different way that we can understand um, the very valid reasons why we find self-kindness um, difficult. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think um, when, again, thinking about people who seem to struggle the most with that emotional vulnerability and with self-compassion, they do also seem to the people who have the least amount of hope. I'm thinking about my insider clients in particular, who seem to have the least amount of hope of recovery mm. as well, um, which is, I think, oh yeah, another interesting um, little picture that's forming for me as we speak. Um, yeah, about how all those things are so interrelated and why, as a dietitian, um, one of the first things I did when I started to practice up here was try to find some psychologists who I felt comfortable to refer to. 
Yeah, definitely. Oh my goodness, our, our therapy uh, colleagues are just godsends, honestly. Oh, they really are. And actually, going back to sort of the boundaries thing you talked about earlier, one of the um, things which came out of that, which had been unsaid uh, for a while, but led to some awkward conversations, but is now just upfront, um, is that my e sort of clients actually need to be engaged with um, the psychologist and the GP. Yeah. Um, and that, again, keeps them safe, keeps me safe. And um, I think dietitians, we're not well trained in um, how accepting unsafe situations can actually be enabling and um, we think we're helping and we think we're keeping the person safe by um, continuing to see them, whereas actually we might be prolonging how long they're unsafe for by oh, not yeah. insisting that they are connected with other therapists. Oh, my goodness. That is so true. <laughs> Oh, so to, to carry on, because it, it feels as if, um, you know, we've got this real theme of boundaries, which is, I, I mean, you know, it's one of my favourite things to, to talk about. Um, and I just wanted to shift this a little because um, one thing that I know we've spoken about just between us um, previously um, is your is your very deliberate kind of shift away from social media. So, um, and I don't mean an absence of because you're still very much there. Um, but, but I'm curious around that, you know, how you kind of, um, choosing to use your energy and what that means in terms of boundaries. And yeah, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that if you, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so I think like a lot of us, when, you know, Facebook first came and Instagram first came, we kind of just jumped in with two feet and I was sharing everything and posting everything and there was photos everywhere I was going, everything I was doing. Um, and then... I think even with my first child, still 10 years ago, um, I was still very sherry photos, what I'm doing. And then as the kind of years went on, I started thinking more about their digital footprint and how much of myself I wanted to share. And then once I had like a business Facebook page and Instagram page that wasn't just my friends thinking about um, what I wanted to protect and what I wanted to keep um, for me and for my family um, and what I didn't want to use. So I can give you an example. So um, I decided a while ago that I didn't want to put my kids much on social media. Occasionally there might be a little photo. I don't tend to use their names. I don't tend to use their, you know, birth dates and stuff like that. Um, and some people do, and I'm not judging them. I've just made a different decision. Sure. Um, and it certainly was a part of deciding that I had to decide I was okay with, and I am, um, that social media, I wasn't going to be an influencer because I wasn't going to spend a lot of time and energy and I wasn't going to be super open. And I think social media requires a real level of openness um, to get that authenticity, which I think is good. Um, but for me, it wasn't worth the cost. So an example um, is that a lot of people won't know this because I haven't been public about it, but I trust you mindful dietitians. Um, so last year, um, my middle son um, had some really significant health concerns. He had a, um, had a brain tumour and we had to have that removed and that was a horrendous time. It was lots of hospitals. It was lots of cancelled plans. It was um, really difficult. And just being a dietitian and thinking about things, so often I could think about there's actually a useful lesson in here that might be helpful for other people to hear. So, you know, you're stuck in emergency, 
at 10 o'clock at night, none of the cafes are open. You're starving because you haven't looked after, <laughs> been able to look after yourself that day because your kid's sick. Um, the only thing you can have is a Mars bar and can of Coke from the vending machine or whatever. Um, and I'm very comfortable choosing to eat those things. I've got a, you know, a good um, make-do attitude to food. And I could have photographed that and done a picture of, hey, I'm in emergency with my seven-year-old, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I, well, not prepared, I wasn't prepared to do that. And there's been a lot of situations where I know I could get lots of followers and make a, and make a good point. Like it's not um, completely... Uh, what's the yes, word I'm it, looking it, for? Would, it wouldn't be pointless. You'd be. You'd it wouldn't be pointless. It wouldn't be just about yeah, hey, yeah, yeah. for some steel story points. I think there'd be some useful points in there, um, but it just left a level of openness from my family and myself that I wasn't willing to do. But also, what I noticed is social media really mucks with my mental health. I just, I, it, I don't do well with it. Um, I don't do well with, I go down rabbit holes and I'm distracted from my kids and I don't like being on my phone when my kids are around. But if I've responded to something and then someone's come back at me, I feel this crazy pressure to get back to them. Um, and so a few, I just decided that it was just somewhere that I, I couldn't spend my energy. And I really, um, I found that a hard decision because part of me was like, oh, am I copping out? Am I retreating into my privilege? Am I X, Y, and Z? Um, and again, what I thought would work with, a, with clients about thinking through things and making a decision, um, I got to the point where I could just own the decision that I'd made, that it is boundaries, it is um, some self-care, and it actually frees me up to be effective in the areas where I actually think I'm best. I don't think I'm great at social media. I don't think um, it's where it takes so much energy from me for what I think is little benefit compared to doing a lecture to dietetic students um, or speaking to, to you know, speaking to teachers and parents um, about um, safe, <laughs> safe and effective nutrition um, education. That stuff I think has a bigger, has a bigger impact and it energizes me. It's the work that I love. It's the work that I'm good at. Um, it doesn't drain me like social media does. And so that was, that was kind of hard because of the expectations I had on myself and, you know, because social media does seem like such a fun and great way to connect and get business and this, that and the other. Um, but ultimately I just had to sit down and have a good think about where I wanted to spend my energy. I've got three little kids. I can't actually afford to be cranky and anxious <laughs> because someone's arguing with me on social media. <laughs> Yeah, that yeah, that's exactly right, Meg. And I think you know when we're when we're thinking about effectiveness, um, you know, it's it's really tempting, and it's it, it's interesting to think about how we too can get drawn into the very constructs that we are trying to dismantle. So, mm. uh, for example, perfectionism all or nothing thinking or, you know, what we might know as binary thinking, um, comparisons. These are all, yeah. um, these are all cultural constructs uh, very much part of diet culture that we you know, spend so much of our time and energy, particularly professionally, but also a lot of us personally as well, um, trying to dismantle and deconstruct. And um, I often, I, I see it in myself, in my own behaviours as well, that, um, you know, we can also get drawn into these very same constructs 
constructs that would, you know, on one hand we're, we're um, fighting kind of tooth and nail to speak out against and yet we find ourselves right in the thick of it as well. And social media is one of those where, um, you know, we might unknowingly kind of get pulled down a rabbit hole. Um, like you say, sometimes these are difficult kind of conversations or other times it's we're drawn into comparisons and, oh, this person's doing X, Y, Z and I can see they're mm. doing ABC. Yeah. So maybe that's what I quote unquote should be doing. But I really, I've got so much respect for um, people that, I mean, these are people that I know I have the privilege of knowing personally who are doing incredible um, advocacy and activism work, but they're doing it not on social media and they are very effective. And so I just, I actually turn to those people. I'm starting to turn to them more and more because I can see that um, there is a lot to learn from having still a heart-centred, client-centred community um, equity centered approach that is not also aligning with the very constructs that we're trying to dismantle at the same time yeah no absolutely and I think it's um yeah it's something you do need to to work through because the line of least resistance is to end up in that cultural in those um those constructs that are so unhelpful um and what I find um quite humbling is that they're challenging for me with all the privilege of my degree and my knowledge and finding myself in um finding you know being um taught haze and understanding that and like it's been that has been such a freeing thing um and yet it's so it takes work to not get drawn into that so then i just think i just want to be out there helping other people um recognize when they are help pull them out and I don't think social media is actually where I do that and I used for a while I used to do lots of commenting and going to and forth and thinking in my head I was well it's not the person I'm speaking to because quite possibly I might not be able to change their mind but the other people following along at home you know the people who might be reading this exchange and it's so unmeasurable mm. that for me the potential is that I'm using all this energy and time and responding and getting stressed and drained and blah 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 for no, for no one actually being there, <laughs> playing along at home, or I can know that I'm about to go and speak to 50 primary school teachers um, about the risks inherent in teaching nutrition on a cultural backdrop of diet culture. Um, that's where I want. That's actually where I want to focus my energy. I think we do. Partly, it's a human thing, but I think sometimes we do need measurables to actually help us. Um, not burn out and have that that feedback that we are making a difference because sometimes it feels so overwhelming and I love your you know chip 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 away yeah. <laughs> um but you need sometimes you need to be able to see at least see the chips um that you are actually actually are making that 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 little bit of difference yeah and I think on social media sometimes you just you don't see it and that could actually be because it's not there or it could be just that you don't see it um but at this stage of my life where I'm time poor and I know the way that it affects me um it's it's just not somewhere I can spend my energy 
Yeah, definitely. And also, you know, reflecting on, I mean, I know you very well, Meg, and, and you are a person who makes incredible in-person connections. You know, your, your gift, uh, being able to connect with people um, and, and meet them where they're at and, and speak so compassionately and with such clarity um, is, is definitely your strength. So understanding how, how our communication um, how, how we can kind of structure our communication channels to to work to our strengths and to make sure that we're taking good care of ourselves because we can't afford to lose good people from our profession. Um, we, we, yeah, we simply just can't mm. do that. And no. Too many people are burning out. And we are, and people are burning out. Um, and for me, it was just really, it's just interesting to be able to notice, oh, that's actually what's burning me out. Isn't my client work? Like I, I love um, <laughs> sort of work. I love not that work i come home from a day of you know i do a really long wednesday um and i come home at you know nine o'clock at night having had lots of clients and i feel great i don't feel drained i don't feel um down i feel fantastic um and if i've done gone and you know spoken to you know, a bunch of year nine students and got them you know thinking differently about their bodies and i i love that stuff that's other stuff that other people hate but I love it um so I just work with like I need to work with my energy and work with my strengths um rather than rather than again like against it which social media really does that for me just works again just sap it just saps the energy out of me yeah, absolutely. And it's only in, you know, this is, this is one of the areas where both self-compassion, which I would, um, I would absolutely say is at the core of any kind of effective dietetic practice um, and any personal practice really as a, as a human being, that when we are aware of how we're taking in and then also using our energy, we can just be really thoughtful about that and be considerate about um, who, when and why we're giving and receiving. Um, mm. So it's, um, yeah, just something to think about throughout our careers, for sure. I think so. And I think particularly, um, I guess I was lucky because I'm old. No, um, I think it's hard, probably harder for younger dietitians. Like there's student dietitians who we've, um, I should know the other way, and, and I love what she's doing. She's doing an amazing job. Um, a student dietitian who we did our lecture to at Wollongong Uni who already has an Instagram following of like 16,000 people or something, like something huge, um, and not even graduated yet. And so I think that's like a lot of, for younger dietitians to feel the pressure, that's where you have to be. Like you have to have a social media presence to, to grow. And um, I haven't seen any change to my referrals or my business since I've, you know, really backed off posting stuff and backed off being involved in lots of conversations. Um, so... Mm. Mm. And, and it's really around, you know, what's the purpose of this? Who, who am I speaking who am I speaking yeah. to? Yeah. yeah. So there's lots of different ways that we can be effective. And what you've really done, Meg, is really illustrate that, um, Ill illustrate that there's, yeah, that, that you don't, there's not one single way that we have to use our energy. And in fact, you know, being experimental with, you know, absolutely. How, how do I and feel? And I'm really myself? glad that there are people doing lots of stuff on Instagram because I send my clients who are on Instagram to them. <laughs> hey, follow these pages. Yeah. <laughs> um, watch this video. Do this. Like, I, I like, I think that's, they're great resources. So I'm really glad that they're there. Um, and, but it's just, it's not the way that I'm going to have an influence in, um, yeah, in spreading the word. As we say. 
That's right. In chipping away. Chipping away. That's right. Um, Meg, it was such a pleasure to be chatting with you. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, your wisdom, your knowledge, your insights, and just your amazing energy and spirit. I just really appreciate it. So um, just to finish us off, where can people find you, apart from Maitland <laughs> and the wineries? <laughs> <laughs> wineries not heaps on social media um yes so <laughs> you can buy am on social media so my business name is choose nutrition c-h-o-o-s-e nutrition which i probably wouldn't call my business that now but rebranding is too hard Excessive. Um, <laughs> that's right or i'm cn underscore meg um on instagram and choose nutrition on facebook um and yes yeah, so mostly i do face like one-on-one clients but I also do um talks to teenagers um and I love that work actually um sort of uh, high school students on um navigating what's become really hard like it's become so hard for teenagers to, to sort of plot a course for themselves um in our in our culture that on one hand has um you know green smoothie wellness gurus doing yoga on a beach um, and then on the other hand has, you know, it's all about flavour and excess and MasterChef. And so we're kind of food obsessed and we're kind of diet obsessed. And for people to actually plot a healthy course themselves is really difficult. And so I love um, trying to give some support to teenagers on, you know, on finding, on plotting their, their course um, to look after themselves. Um, so I do that usually through Choose Nutrition as well. Yeah, that's actually really. Do you know what? We could do a whole nother podcast episode on responsible nutrition education messaging, I guess. Oh, we could. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's, that's my bugbear. That's where I will jump in on social media. <laughs> We're like, hey, I've got this opportunity to talk to teenage girls. Got me any ideas? I'm like, oh, yes, because we Hold can do back. so much harm if we don't consider this really carefully. And interestingly, um, I and I know that we need to wrap up, but. Um, one of the things that first got me really understanding as well as like the last sort of piece in my puzzle um, of moving to a non-diet approach and to health at every size um, was I was asked to come and to go and speak to um, some year 10, 11 and 12 girls um, as part of sort of a um, wellbeing day. And I knew that I had to be really careful and that sent me down the literature rabbit hole um, of safe and effective nutrition education, which um, in a weight-centric culture is extremely difficult. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's it's such a risk. Um, it's hard to get in front of um, teenage teenagers to talk about nutrition, and it should be. Um, so that's really good. Um, but if you do have that opportunity, then that's somewhere where we've got to tread really, really carefully, or we can just make things a whole lot worse for people. Yeah, absolutely. Probably probably goes um, similarly across all age groups. You know, if we're speaking to six year olds or eight year olds. Or... Oh, absolutely. I think I think yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I think part of why it's um, particularly risky for teens is all is navigating all the other messages. Yeah, that it's so can, true. Um, yeah, yep. any increased think... internalization of cultural messages. That's exactly right. Whereas your littleies, yes, they'll have their sort of real concrete thinking and. I think a lot of them will just sort of dismiss <laughs> what doesn't make sense um, or try to fill in the gaps with their own information or they might at least go home and talk to their parents about it, um, whereas I think teenagers hold a lot of it in. Yeah, that's true. 
yeah, that's true. They, they, uh, some teenagers are very, well, it, it, um, it depends on their kind of level of discernment, I suppose, if they're kind of critical thinking, critical thinkers, really. Oh yeah. And like, I've got some, had some amazing clients who just give me such hope, um, yes. for that we're all going to be fine. <laughs> Um, Because they really are thoughtful and wonderful and they're critiquing the messages that are coming, but they don't know, so what do I do with this? I know that I don't want to do this, so what do I do? And I think that's a great place to step in um, and show that alternative. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank goodness for people like you and Catherine Zavodny and Anna Lutz and um, um, Deb Blakely, you know, thank goodness for people like you who are really flying yeah. flag for responsible nutrition education throughout. Yeah, oh, the- Kelly Fullerton, that's the other one we have. Oh, to Kelly about. Fullerton, of course, yes. Um, <laughs> you know, it just we really need to kind of to, to shift uh, the not only the content but also the way that these conversations are facilitated. So really grateful for your voice, particularly in that sector. Um, but overall, just just really grateful to you as a human, Meg. You're just wonderful. Thanks, Meg, so much for joining me today. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.